0: We bring in Richard Zussman, global news reporter based at the legislature. Good afternoon, Richard.
1: Hey, Bruce. Good afternoon.
0: Well, this is uh, something that is definitely required. I like those words. I like the words of uh, increasing the supply, fighting speculation. Um, Is it going to work?
1: Yeah, so the government has tried this before, back in 2018, and what have we seen since then? The highest housing prices we've seen in the province's history, uh, rents that have hit a point higher than we've ever seen in history, and a 0% vacancy. So is it going to work? We'll see. Uh, David Eby has committed a lot of time and resources to putting together this plan. Uh, It tackles far more than just building homes, because the province ultimately realized that in building homes, Uh, While more people are coming here, it is actually driving up the housing values. And so now there are going to be uh, new tools that are put in place. So a big piece of all of this uh, is a mandatory policy where every municipality in this province uh, will have secondary suites. There will be pushback from some municipalities around this, but the province is stepping in to forge ahead with that. There will also be uh, a policy that any single-family home can be developed to up to four suites. So that will put additional density in places where we historically have had uh, detached family homes. There's going to be a flipping tax put in place. Very few details on that policy piece, but that will be coming to stop those uh, who have been uh Building and buying homes solely to make profits to flip them uh, in a red hot market. And the last big policy piece here, Bruce, uh, is a loan that will be put in place. Uh, to encourage people to build uh, rental suites on their property. So that could include a laneway home, that could include a basement suite. Starting in early 2024, homeowners will be able to access a loan of up to 50% a forgivable loan for the cost of renovations up to a maximum of $40,000 over five years. So that could help. Uh, improve the value in people's home but it will also ensure that there are more spaces to rent and the only way you get that loan back Bruce is if you meet the conditions including renting out a unit below market rates for a minimum of five years.
0: Well those are three definite things and at least they're well articulated I think from the province but I'd like to touch on one of these Richard and uh, I think it's really easy and kind of rich for the province to talk about putting more Suites into uh, one piece of property. I live in Clayton Heights in uh, in Surrey, and uh, there are multiple suites already in uh, in some of the houses, single detached houses. And guess what? It is a huge problem when it comes to garbage collection. A yep. even bigger problem when it comes to parking, and uh, nobody's put any consideration in for that. province doesn't have to worry about it they can offload that concern to the municipality to the cities you deal with it you deal with garbage you deal with all the extra servicing and all the extra parking uh is there any talk from the province on how they're going to square that
1: yeah, and it's not just parking and garbage. It's schools, it's hospitals, it's roads. It's all the amenities attached with when you increase density. And sure, when you increase density along transit lines, a lot of that is built in. And that's part of the plan as well. But you raise a very important point, and, and it came up in the press conference that I just attended. Victoria Mayor Marianne Alta was there. And she spoke about as people get used to living in smaller spaces, they need to rely more heavily on out. Side spaces from their home but also rely on their municipality to do exactly what you mentioned ensure that the garbage is picked up ensure that the services are delivered and the, the buzzword here when you mentioned buzzwords was about partnerships working with municipalities and that is going to come with time there will be the support there but it adds a whole new layer and as we see communities like Surrey continue to grow its density like Burnaby as we see communities that have been served a certain way for a long time potentially fundamentally change with these policies there's going to need to be a catch-up from the province to help provide those additional resources just to do the basics as you mentioned ensure that there's parking ensure that garbage is picked up ensure that the kids have a place to go to school.
0: The other one we're talking about here if we're to go right to that middle piece, uh, speculation. That's huge, and uh, governments have taken an attempt to uh, curb this and been kind of successful at doing it, but speculation still drives part of the market, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and it's a business too, right? That there are people in this province who make a lot of money uh, speculating and flipping homes. So whenever you have a commodity that is it is in demand as this, there's going to be a market for reselling, and we will see what this flipping tax looks like, but there are going to be a lot of, uh, you know, people... One of the challenges here is there are a lot of developers who rely on building and moving, building and moving, building and moving. And will they be caught under the flipping tax or will they be exempt because they're in essence putting houses into the market and taking advantage of a commodity? And this has been an issue for as long as I've worked in Metro Vancouver and probably for as long as you've worked in Metro Vancouver, Bruce, is the the, There is a demand to live here. It drives up the prices, and people's equity is locked up in their homes. And if you influence those markets too much, those who have that built-up equity could lose it over time. And those who are trying to get into the market feel this tremendous pressure getting in. And that's the give and take that happens around the housing debate and one of those challenges that the province is going to have to grapple with. But the reality is a lot of these solutions, we're not going to feel any difference until – after the next provincial election, which is now scheduled for the fall of 2024. And it's going to be fascinating how the um, conversation shapes up leading through now, right through that election period.
0: And wow, that's about the only word I can think of. Huge day for Canada and anybody who's really into space. Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen, We'll be joining the Artemis II moon mission next year as a mission specialist, making him the first non-American to do this type of mission. Anson said during a news conference with NASA this morning that Canada's partnership in the moon and the moon mission can be credited to American leadership and Canada's can-do attitude. He's a master of science in physics, an F-18 pilot, and a Canadian astronaut. Your mission specialist, Jeremy Hansen.
2: Thanks, Victor. Awesome words. What I, uh, what I wanted to highlight for all of you today is, uh, well, you know, big picture when I step back, there are two reasons why a Canadian is going to the moon. That makes me smile when I say that. <laughs> uh, the first one is American leadership. It is not lost on any of us that the United States could choose to go back to the moon by themselves. but. America has made a very deliberate choice over decades to curate a global team. And that, in my definition, is true leadership. A body, an entity that seeks out others who can contribute, allows them to rise up, lifts them up to make their contributions to bring their genius. That is American leadership, and as a Canadian, I am very proud to reflect that back to you, and I am grateful all Canada is, all of Canada is grateful for that global mindset and that leadership, so thank you. The second reason is Canada's can-do attitude. For, <laughs> yeah. For decades now, literally thousands upon thousands of Canadians have risen to that challenge, to bring real value to the international partnership with respect to space exploration, to bring real solutions. Our scientists, our engineers, the Canadian Space Agency, the Canadian Armed Forces, across government, all of our leadership working together under a vision to take step by step, and all of those have added up to this moment where a Canadian is going to the moon with our international partnership, and it is glorious. So at the end of it all, I am left in awe of being reminded what strong leadership, setting big goals with a passion to collaborate, and a can-do attitude can achieve and we are going to the moon together let's go go.
0: well historic day for canada indeed with the canadian astronaut joining that mission to the moon to be sure it's orbiting around the moon but first time up to the moon since 1972 so this is going to be huge joining us is andrew uh, ferreira he's the speaker's chair with the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, the Vancouver Centre. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Big day indeed, eh?
3: I'll say. It was a good way to wake up. I don't usually like Monday mornings, but uh, I'll I'll make an exception for this one.
0: And this one really caught us all by surprise, I think. Uh, They kept this under hat, didn't they?
3: Uh, They kept under hat that it was going to be uh, Jeremy Hansen, but We've known actually for uh, a while that there was going to be a Canadian on one of the uh, uh, Artemis missions, and I can't remember exactly when it was, but uh, in the last couple of years, they narrowed it down to this mission, which is going to be Artemis two.
0: Why is this important? I mean, well, there's the profile, of course, but why <laughs> is the actual research, the the mission itself, why is it important?
3: Uh, you can kind of think of this as the very first um real mission with this brand new generation um, of of moon tech, right, of stuff to get us to lunar orbit, to get us down potentially uh, to the lunar surface um, as a training run for all of the procedures that might need to happen on any lunar mission. Um, So this is really kind of a dress rehearsal um, for when we do finally send astronauts, uh, you know, down to the moon um, in, in the coming years.
0: And there was a great deal of talk about this because, well, this first mission, by the way, is going to take place next year. So we're talking, it's a pretty quick turnaround. Uh, They're going to circle and they're talking about a landing being possible sometime shortly after that.
3: Yeah, so they're hoping, and the original timeline for the Artemis missions has has dragged behind a little bit. Um, They are originally hoping to have boots on the ground this, uh, sorry, in 2024, Um, But that's been pushed back to, I believe, no earlier than 2025, and I believe that's probably going to slip as well. But we are looking in the next three to four years uh, at the return uh, of, you know, a semi-permanent this time, uh, human presence to the lunar surface. You know, back in the Apollo days, uh, at no point did we ever think, okay, this is a semi-permanent presence. It was only, you know, a quick few days down and then we're back to Earth. Um, but this is really setting the stage for the establishment of of a permanent habitat with semi permanent, uh, you know, human inhabitants who will be, you know, living on the moon, doing science, uh, doing research. Um, so this really is kind of like the first uh, dress rehearsal.
0: Wow, that's incredible when you think of it. Um, and they're holding out hope of that 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 can happen in the next decade, that you could set up some sort of uh, research facilities with people in them. I hate to use the word manned because it's not just men, but uh, it's going to be a uh, staffed, fully human uh, research facility, quite possibly, right?
3: Uh, That's correct, yeah. They're hoping to have it set up on uh, the lunar south pole, Um, and that's so that it's always in view uh, of the Earth, because if you were to set it up, Um, You know, uh, on any other spot, there might be instances where we might lose communication, um, but setting it up on the South Pole, uh, first of all, helps them, you know, communicate with the earth at a constant rate. Uh, But also, second of all, uh, it helps us uh, actually learn about how to exploit resources on the moon. Um, And I mean this in a scientific way, not in a we're going to ship it back to Earth and sell it. That's still in the future. Um, But, you know, to find stuff like water, to find stuff like hydrogen, to find stuff like uh, other minerals that we might need to, you know, potentially 3D print rockets on the moon, which is a very real thing, I promise.
0: This is going to mean so much for science, uh, not just in the post-secondary and research level and corporate level in this country, but also for science uh, right in the classrooms for K-12, to isn't it?
3: Oh, this is going to be huge. Um, you know, it, it's been so long, um, you know, since we've had any real, you know, kind of, I don't want to call it a renaissance, but a renaissance and, and interest in interest in astronomy and space flight. Uh, but we're starting to see, and, this is only the first step, right? Artemis II is just the very first step of this, of, you know, astronomers, Canadian, American, and, and all others who are really going to be heading out, you know, into space once again. You know, it, it's been decades, you know, since the Apollo days, right? And the Apollo days, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think it's important to mention that it is or was the result of geopolitical posturing, first and foremost, yeah. uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, and it would be I would be remiss if I said that this wasn't going to be something similar because we are entering a brand new space race, except instead of the United States and the USSR, uh, we're now seeing the United States uh, and the European Union, as well as Canada and Japan tagging along uh, and Russia and, and now China as well. And China's space. Uh, uh, and uh, ambitions, as well as their program, have accelerated tremendously in the last decade and a half.
0: Andrew, so would you the, also say it's a, a space race not just between countries now, but it's also a space race between government or the public sector and private corporations?
3: And, uh, the, and, the, uh, and the private sector is making it incredibly, incredibly competitive. You know, you've seen the amount of progress that companies like SpaceX have made uh, in, you know, barely 15 years, right? The SLS, which is NASA's new moon rocket, um, it's essentially a rehash of the Saturn V with with improvements, you know, here and there. Whereas, and, you know, this has been, you know, 50 odd years in the making, whereas SpaceX essentially, you know, gone from, you know, nothing to, you know, heavy rockets able to supply the International Space Station uh, in a decade and a half. So the private sector is really putting the pressure on, you know, public institutions like NASA, like the Canadian Space Agency, uh, to innovate and to innovate fast.
0: Exciting day for space and technology, Canadian style. The announcement today that Jeremy Hansen will be joining Artemis II. He's a Canadian astronaut and uh, going to the moon. We'll be circling the moon coming up in the, not this year, but the next year after that. Our guest is Andrew Ferreira. He's a speaker's chair with the Royal Astro- Astronomical Society of Canada, the Vancouver Center. Andrew, what does this mean in terms of the profile now for the Canadian Space Program?
3: Well, and I, I want to take this opportunity to also call back to something that's related to the space program, and that's our armed forces. Uh, and I want to call back to the Avro Arrow, um, which, you know, if you're Canceled in the right... project, purpose, project back in the 60s. You've heard uh, about towards the limit of ad nauseum. Um, Canada's always been... Uh, punching above their weight in terms of what we accomplish on the technology side of things. Um, You look at the Canada Arm, right? The Canada Arm initially on the shuttle, now the space station Uh, and the entire reason that Canada has a seat on this mission Artemis II is because uh, we essentially bartered with NASA saying, we'll build you a Canada Arm 3 for your brand new lunar station which will be called the Lunar Gateway Uh, and in exchange, why don't you give the Canadian astronaut a seat? And NASA was like, that sounds like a fair deal. So, you know, Hopefully, and here's what I'm really hoping, that this kind of elevates Canada and the public perception in terms of space, because we have some of the, the world's leading, for instance, satellite manufacturers. MDA uh, has an office in Richmond, B.C., right? It's right there. Uh, you know, we have a lot of expertise. The legs on the Apollo mission uh, for the Eagle Lander were made just outside Montreal. So the very first part of the Apollo missions to touch down on the moon was Canadian. Um, You know, we've been punching above our weight for decades, and I hope that, you know, this just kind of spurs us to continue to do so.
0: Well, when we punch above our weight and we have such a high profile thing like this. And uh, if you take a look at Jeremy Hansen, uh, you don't get a better picture of uh, what a poster child might happen to look like for a Canadian astronaut than him. Um, And uh, an amazing credit to the program. But uh, what does this mean for those who wanting to go into uh, the science and technology related to spaceflight in this country?
3: Well, now the doors have been flung wide open, right? We're finally entering an era where spaceflight either, you know, with a public entity like NASA or privately... Um, is becoming a very real thing in the very near future. Um, and of course, you know, you know, you can obviously say, you know, in the classrooms, in our elementary schools, our middle schools and high schools, this is going to be something that will be keyed in on, rightfully so. Uh, it's a huge moment uh, of what I would think as national pride, right? This is something to be very proud of. Uh, but even for, you know, people who are, you know, in that break, you know, trying to think of what to do for university or maybe people who are even thinking, uh, of what to do next after their, you know, for instance, their bachelor's in a science or something, or engineering, right? This is, you know, I think worth pause to realize that, uh, you know, to be an astronaut, as time goes on here, uh, you're going to have to be less of a, less and less of a superhuman, right? Um, you know, you look at the resumes for some of the other astronauts, not even touch on Jeremy Hansen, like Joshua Kutrick, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got a bachelor's in mechanical engineering, he's got a master's in space studies, a master's in flight engineering, a master's in defense studies. He's got an airline transport license. He's got all sorts of fighter pilot licenses. Uh, you know, these people are as close as you can get to superhumans, right? Uh, another one of our up-and-coming astronauts, uh, Dr. Jennifer uh, Sidie Gibbons. You know, she's got a bachelor's in mechanical engineering, a PhD in engineering. Uh, she's, an, she's a lecturer. So even the arts come into this. You know, as much as we want to put scientists and engineers and whatever up into space, uh, there's room. And I think there's a necessity for folks who aren't. Superhuman, in a sense, uh, to be up there to help communicate what's yeah, happening.
0: You're definitely getting academics on top of everything else. I mean, they're they're superstars in every category.
3: No, oh, for sure. And you look at uh, former commander Chris Hadfield. You know, the man essentially shot a music video in space. Like, it does not get any cooler than that. I don't think.
0: And the um, singer, yes.
3: Yeah, I know. So you know, there's a whole lot to do when it comes to space and this kind of new era where you don't need to be, you know, a quote-unquote superhuman uh, to make your, you know, to take your shot and have a chance. I think that that's huge Uh, for everyone, you know, whether you're thinking of becoming an astronaut or looking at the potential of, you know, being a private citizen who just takes a quick jaunt up above 100 kilometres. I hope this kind of helps to inspire uh, a little bit of pause in you to take a look up at the sky sometimes. Uh, It's hard to kind of remember that, there's an entire universe out there when all you're thinking about is uh, the bills and the rent and you know work assignments and emails. Um, I think it's important for us to to pause and breathe uh, and appreciate where we are uh, in the universe. Great uh, words this is a good and first step.
0: Fantastic thoughts. I totally agree with you, and uh, it's amazing to see the different backgrounds. It's not just uh, flight aces coming out of the military. You have to be so much more now. But um, superhero, I don't know. Uh, academic. Definitely, in this case. Andrew Ferreira, thanks for spending time with us.
3: Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Bruce.
0: Well, a leaked City of Vancouver document is now out there calling for an escalation to clear out the downtown Eastside tent encampments. You see, a statement from the City acknowledges that the document was prepared for staff-level discussions It's not going to comment any further, but what we know, according to a post-media leak or a leak to post-media, is the city of Vancouver has drawn up some plans to start moving people out along East Hastings Street. And uh, some are already describing this as American-style police decampments. Well, police, I don't know. Certainly the city of Vancouver, police acting on behalf of their call. But uh, to get a little bit more about that, we bring in Ryan Suds. He's an organizer of the group to stop the sweeps in this area. Ryan, thanks for joining us this afternoon.
4: Thank you for having
0: me. You know, uh, this is probably a leak the city never wanted to have out there. You've uh, heard the information that's uh, being leaked to post media, the Vancouver Sun. What do you think? We were very alarmed uh, seeing this
4: leak. I think specifically what has us worried and has folks in the Hastings Tent City worried is this switch to a police-led decampment. Um, So far, the city of Vancouver has been leading these with police accompaniment, and the presence of police has really freaked people out, frankly. Uh, And now that it's going to be police-led it's a, it's a big shift in escalation uh and it's frankly like a it feels like a step towards a more uh intimidating or threatening approach because what what's working what's they've been trying so far is not solving homelessness it's not getting people housed
0: no and what we've been talking about here to be sure according to the Vancouver sun is the plan includes the deployment of roving teams of city engineering and vpd staff that will enforce a decampment and remove structures both inside Hastings encampment and around the city as needed. This will be done in a couple of different stages, but when we talk about um, these roving teams, I guess that's where you say that that, in your opinion, is police-led, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it does. there is a line in it where it specifically says the operation on Hastings will be police-led. And yeah, I have a lot of concerns about roving teams going around And, you know, like kind of harassing homeless people to not be homeless. And I think that's where this whole thing is really bothering me is that the city and the province have not built the housing enough, built the housing that people want, that people want to live in. And so now their solutions are our roving team is going to be a mass decampment on Hastings Street because they're, they're out of ideas on how to get people into housing because they don't have the housing. They don't have the good housing that people would want that any person would like. And so now they're relying on blunt force to hide the problem. You, the word that folks uh, on the block have been saying is that it, it makes people feel like they want them to disappear and that we don't have to think about this as a problem anymore.
0: Some would point out that this is definitely a safety problem. It's not just an eyesore. Eyesores we can deal with uh, if we want to talk about an eyesore. And that's a matter of uh, where you come from, I, I guess. I believe your your privilege might dictate whether it's an eyesore. But uh, one can't argue about the safety concern. We've seen fires. We've seen life-threatening situations. Um, is this a move to possibly save lives of those who are camped out? Uh, you know, yeah,
4: Ken Sim. This morning, uh, the mayor of Vancouver said that they were taking an empathetic approach, and that implies that they wanna they wanna help people, that they wanna save lives. But the the reality is homelessness is unsafe, and regardless to me whether someone's tenting in a in a tent city or in an encampment or whatever you wanna call it or elsewhere, it's always going to be unsafe. Um, people are always going to be facing violence, whether it be for for many different places. Um, a tent on its own or a tent in a community is still going to be a fire risk. And so, you know, if, the, if this is a process rooted in compassion and rooted in safety, and let's take fire safety, for example, why hasn't the fire department handed out fire extinguishers to people in tents? Why are they not taking proactive measures to help save lives? There was a program in the summer on Hastings Street to um, have people on the block, fire captains with fire extinguishers, and the funding for that program got cut, which to me in a catastrophic fire situation is, a, is, a, is such a failure. It's such a failure to protect lives in this situation. So, you know, I, I, like, I know folks have concerns around, around tent cities and, and their safety, but homelessness is always going to be unsafe. There, people are going to face a lot of dangers. And so the real answer to me is build the housing that people want, that people need, that, that matches what they want. And that's how we'll take a step forward. But use, using police violence to solve violence in this situation is, is not going to solve the problem we want it to solve.
0: Now, let's talk about the tactics before we talk about uh, building houses. Uh, one ahead. of the tactics here, uh, in stage one, engineering crews with VPD support would no longer disengage when tensions rise or protest advocates, that be you, become uh, too okay. disruptive. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's interesting
4: what they call disruptive. Like the the way it hasn't been going before is that the city has been saying that it's a voluntary decampment process, but they would show up with such force that people would just start taking their tents down. So us disrupting things has been getting in between the city in a very peaceful way, uh, in between the city and the residents and confirming that it's not voluntary and then creating space for that resident to say, I don't want to volunteer to take my tent down and, and go nowhere. So you know, the reason that we're getting pushed out was because it, it really problematized uh, their concept of it being voluntary. Because they want to say that it's voluntary, but, it, but it's not. But I think you know the one thing that, that it admits is that the work that we were doing and the work that residents were doing, frankly, to, to, to stand up for themselves was working. And that people were having an effect on this process because the process is illegitimate. It's unethical. It's immoral. And I think that they know that. And with a, a little bit of pushback, it stops in its tracks. And now they've had to put more force on it to, to to kind of railroad it through.
0: We're talking with Ryan Suds. He's one of the organizers of a group that has been working to stop the so-called sweeps uh, right through the area. And this is in light of uh, our conversation is in light of the leak report from the city that wants to take a more direct action against the encampments when we talk about this uh, this two-step approach. The second is referred to as dealing with a larger event in which all the residents and structures in so-called high-risk zones identified as areas with residents who are combative or aggressive, their words, not mine, or structures that have been repeatedly removed would be targeted for removal. What do you think of that one?
4: Yeah, like, combative, it was a combative and aggressive, right? Um, yep. Yeah, I'm like, I, imagine how any of us would feel when someone comes knocking at your door every morning and tells you to take down your home and move it. Uh, you're getting woke up like, I'm not going to be in the best mood, you know? And, I think that the the use of the words "combative" and "aggressive" are uh, specific. I think that they um, overstate what I've seen, certainly. But yeah, are people are people pissed off? Sorry, excuse me. Are people upset that uh, the city's coming around doing this? Yeah, yeah, they really, they really, truly are upset, and I think they have every right to be upset.
0: We've been talking with Ryan Sudd's organizer of the group Stop the Sweeps talking about this leaked report uh, through the Vancouver Sun that we see that the city of Vancouver, well, it's going to be taking an escalated approach to clearing out the downtown east side encampment. That means uh, taking a two-part or two-step approach and being direct in uh, in its actions. Uh, some concerns there, not only about the rights of uh, people living around there, but also what do you do with the people once they're moved out? Don't know. It's a complex problem, one that the City of Vancouver is dealing with, but one thing we have known, as in the last couple of weeks, there have been some definite safety issues, not the least of which is several fires that have put uh, many lives in jeopardy of some of the people around there. That's just one of them. We're going to go to some phone calls, plenty of them on this topic, like in Vancouver. Dev, Dev, thanks for joining us.
5: Uh, Thank you. You know, I hear lots of talk about rights. My right to this, my right to that. Well, with rights come responsibilities. Now, I have the right uh, to walk down my street and be safe and not be blown up or attacked or raped or mugged. And and when, when you're when your guest talks about, you know, people knock on the on the doors of or on their on their tents, their homes. Well their homes are erected on public property. And and if 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 they're being offered housing and they don't like it, well I'm sorry, but they're offering free housing. You don't get to demand something and then you have five star standards. Well some of them aren't
0: being offered any housing at all because there is no housing to offer for their situations.
5: And if, if that's the case, then Vancouver, there are other places in, 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 that they can move to that they can live in, right? Not the most expensive real estate that's in the world. Is that okay, I appreciate
0: the phone call, Dev, in Vancouver. Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm, like, I'm sympathetic. You know, I, like, I
4: get that, that if you're walking down Hastings Street, yeah, there are some there are some tents in the way, and I get that that people people are scared, and I, I just I just really want to emphasize that like this is it's it's a failure of the city and the province to make make the streets safe without hurting people in the process, um, and I really like yeah like like we no nobody wants a fire that's going to hurt people. No, nobody wants that to happen. But if this is a catastrophe, like the fire chief says it is like 300 units 330 units that the, the city's building is not going to be enough we Ryan, need, we need up, more of it
0: let me ask you this question do you envision sure. a vancouver with the downtown east side that has enough services that you will never see people homeless on the streets is that possible in any form like
4: uh, you know uh it, it would be a radically different society that we're living in if if, if that's the case. I don't, I don't see it happening in, in the near future. And the reason I don't see it happening is because the processes we're using right now to address the issue are not compassionate and not treating people as humans. And until the process becomes something that is human, humanizing and dignified we're going to end up right back in the same spot we're going to shut down oppenheimer and we're going to get strathcona we're going to shut down strathcona and we're going to get Crab park we're going to shut down that and then it's going to go everywhere because it's not treating people it's not humanizing people
0: okay let's go to coquitlam yeah. and take a phone call from john john what do you think
4: you know i've got a real problem with
1: everybody pointing fingers and everybody's got responsibility i've traveled the world I've been in L.A. and San Francisco, and I got God, I hope Vancouver doesn't become San Francisco. Well, we're worse now, and I'm sorry, but these people that want to be compassionate to the street people, you know, the garbage truck and the police will come along, will clean the sidewalk, clean the gutters, and five minutes later, they're garbage, because these people don't care. There's garbage cans. They don't care. Sometimes tough love is needed and we need to start respecting each other
0: okay let's uh pick up on that thanks john is it uh is it true do you think people don't care that are in that situation ryan
4: no people care people care i've seen it uh is there garbage on the street yeah um there could be more garbage cans we've called for more garbage cans um folks are down and out a bit too sometimes you know like like i'm not gonna pretend that like there aren't you know major uh like uh there's a poison drug crisis right now. For example, like people are sick, people are going through a hard time. Uh, yeah, if, you know what, if the city were coming down here and cleaning up garbage, and that's what they were doing, I think that would be okay. And it, it, you know, I know you, I know that your you know, previous call was, uh, you know exaggerating a bit, but like no, it's not like five minutes afterwards all the gar- our garbage is back on the street. People people do care, um, and some people just have a greater capacity to care for their for their space or their neighborhood than others. Okay, depending on the day.
0: Thanks, John. I appreciate your phone call. Let's go to Mike and Surrey. Mike, what do you think?
4: Well, I think we need to do the sweeps. I think we really have to clear that area out. And I think that uh, we watched uh, what's happening as more and more people come to the city and more and more people seem to be drifting down to the east side. I moved here 30 years ago and the downtown east side in Hastings has been almost a tourist attraction when it comes to the homeless and the horrid uh, conditions, yet they just keep coming and coming and coming. So at some point, you have to sweep through and remove them. And I think maybe we're going to even have to do, start doing street checks again as people from the downtown east side drift to other areas of the,
0: of the city. Okay, I appreciate uh, I the phone call Mike. I think you represent the feeling of a lot of people. Ryan, do you get the sense that uh people that aren't on the downtown east side are very much pro uh being carted and uh and having s- sweeps right through the area?
4: Yeah. Yeah. No, I like I like I get it. Like I know I know people don't like ten cities and and I hear it. I just I want these processes to be humanized. And I w- I also want to say like I I don't want I don't want people living in tents either. I don't I don't want tent cities in society either. But what I don't want is people's homes, people's tents being taken, where they don't have a place to go that's going to be safe for them. Um, I just want to stop this this cycle where we're just pushing people around and never actually addressing the actual problem. And I don't think that sweeps I don't think that sweeps are going to address the concern. That people have about these things, and that the previous caller had. I think sweeps are are uh, an unimaginative and cruel way to deal with the problem.
0: Of Why do homelessness. we call them American style decampments or sweeps? Uh, is there is it because the Americans are so much worse in your view of how they handle it?
4: It's it's because right now in the in the states along uh, you know I see a lot of footage coming out of San Diego where it's a very heavy police led force. Uh, and it's not about getting folks housing. And so I think that's, that's what I would refer to as, a, as an American style is the, inf- the, um, the emphasis on policing and therefore homelessness and being unhoused as a crime simply for existing in a tent is going to become more and more criminalized and therefore put people at greater threat.
6: No, it's not even a concern. you know this is really about the safety of the community and you know it, it it's a balance. We know that um, folks really find value in the platform, whether that is the merchants who are connecting with customers, customers who are looking at convenience of delivery, and then dashers who are earning on the platform it's about making sure that all three of those sides are protected and safe, but that we're balancing their needs and the values that they get out of the uh, the service itself and so when we make these decisions, we don't take them lightly. We really look at a number of factors um, and determine again, you know, is it simply a proactive reminder to the community to stay safe and some tips and tools to do so? Or is it that more drastic measure of actually shutting down operations temporarily uh, until conditions are better and safer? But we really do put the safety first and foremost as the highest priority and therefore make decisions based on that. Um, and then of course, just as quickly as, as those decisions are made, uh, it's just as quickly opening back up when conditions are safe, and so ensuring that we're not disrupting operations uh, or folks' ability to earn or connect with customers longer than we need to, and so uh, you know that 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 pivot back to reopen is just as critical as the decision we make to to suspend.
0: When it comes to Vancouver, who's making the decision? Is it somebody in Vancouver or somebody that's uh in an office far, far away.
6: Yeah, no, it's our, our regional general manager uh, on the ground there. And it is, um, you know, very much a, a case-by-case basis on when we do so. I think we've only done uh, a couple times where we've actually suspended uh, operations in Canada over the last year or so, or uh, maybe about six months or so. so and it's only not, one it's time not, in Vancouver. You know, frequent and often. Yeah. Yeah, just one time. So it's not frequently and often, but, you know, we do do it when it, when it warrants. Uh, but no, those decisions are made on the ground, uh, folks who are experiencing. And, you know, we look at a number of factors, but, but three things, um, that we keep a close eye on, um, government and local authorities' advice and what they're saying about emergency conditions, um, weather warnings, obviously, where we, we monitor those in, uh, in real time and, and constantly checking for updates. And then live conditions and operations in our, in our own business. And so, you know, what are the cues? that we are seeing? Are there signals from uh, our own operations that we can take to help inform those decisions? Um, but again, it's a case-by-case basis, but it is. It's, it's the local team there who is who is calling those shots and making sure that they are right for not only the Dasher community, but the broader uh, merchant and, and customer base as well.
0: We're talking with Taylor Bennett, Global Head of Public Affairs for DoorDash. Are there any protections for drivers, or are they as independent contractors really responsible for their own safety, and if they get into an accident, it's on them?
6: Yeah, it's a great question, and, you know, and that is really what uh, what we hear from, from dashers. We know that, that weather is a real important issue for them. Upwards of 60% have said it's a factor in determining, um, you know, their safety on the platform, and so that was really part of the reason that this severe weather protocol was implemented um, and, and and why we've decided to take the steps that we do when there are drastic conditions like flooding or severe storms or hurricanes elsewhere and you know when they're out on the streets that suspension of operations is is intended to keep them safe when we know that conditions might be so poor um, where we just don't want to put them in harm's way and so you know really the impetus for this this protocol Um, and as i mentioned we've got various levers to pull and so you know when there might be heavy rains but conditions might not be yet flooding Reminding them to stay safe, the tips and tools to do so, um, and we really try to minimize the distractions on the app and ensure that they've got the the the, the product support, the tech support, and the agent standing by should they need it. Um, you know and safety is something where we can constantly improve, and there are always things that we can do differently and better, whether it's product or policy or programs and so you know, that is an ongoing effort and we're, we're, we're excited about the progress we have made and some of the things we've deployed, but there's there's always much more to do.
0: Taylor, uh, DoorDash has been in operation around Vancouver for several years now. And this is the first time that uh, a protocol back in February was implemented for severe weather. But it's not the first time in those many, many years that we've had dangerous weather in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So if somebody crashed And if they were working for DoorDash, ICBC is not going to cover them. Do they have to take out separate insurance?
6: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something, you know, we're constantly working to um, improve the experience. Uh, You know, it really depends on the the Dasher's coverage and and, and their insurance provider. And and, and so, you know, whether it is uh, providing such an incident would really be a case-by-case answer. But, um, you know, finding those solutions that... We can offer dashers both before uh, a dash, while on a dash, and then afterwards um, supporting them through safety and trust measures that allow them to have the best experience is really what we're committed to. And so, um, you know, again, those insurance questions are going to be a, a case-by-case with the individuals.
0: Insurance really is uh, quite expensive. How much are door dashers making per hour?
6: Yeah, you know, it, it, it's really What we find is this work is very much supplemental for the large majority of dashers. And, you know, they have other jobs, other obligations, their students, um, the majority work three hours or less a week. And so they're doing this to earn extra income. And what we're finding is dashers are making over $25 an hour while they're on a delivery. And so you could make some really good money and folks are doing it to save up for large, uh, purchases or, help get out of debt or uh, save for a financial goal, um, whatever reason it might be, we find folks from all walks of life really appreciating the opportunity to earn when and how they choose. And so uh, the supplemental nature of this and the flexible nature of earning is really what we see to be attractive. And, uh, and you know, over $25 an active hour is, 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 uh, has been really valuable for, for the Dasher community.
0: I know Uber Eats has been the target of possible certification or a union drive. Has that come DoorDash's way?
6: You know, I, it, it's a great question in, in terms of the, the topic of independence. Um, and again, you know, the, the flexible nature of this work is what we see Dashers very much appreciate and why they come to the platform. Um, and, you know, working with policymakers, ensuring that we are finding solutions to uh, to any kind of certification. Uh, it's about keeping those Dasher values in mind. and So when it's the overwhelming majority of, of workers in the platform say they appreciate the independence, the ability to work when and how they choose, you know, it's about finding solutions that embrace that. Uh, you know, today's economy, gig work, uh, folks who have other jobs and, and new and different ways of earning is on the rise. And if this is a way for folks to do that in a way that is valuable uh, and productive for them, you know, we should really be in, in embracing this and finding solutions that can not only protect that flexibility, but then uh, ex- enhance the experience for, for all workers in today's uh, modern economy.
1: 911? 911. 911, what's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship! Ah, there was an explosion! Oh my God, the ship is sinking! I can't get out! There's water everywhere! We're going down! I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry!